people in corporate America do some crazy shit and we're worried about having two partners consensually? Really? Okay. Like, that's hurting. You're like, have you you watched the news recently? Right! Exactly! (laughs) Stop being such a fucking hypocrite. I had to to renegotiate the morality clause in my publishing contract. Well, because again, it was that same thing of of where it's where we just really had to be very specific in that clause of like what counts as an immoral thing as far as what the author does with her life versus what are the values of the company. We just had to like really reword that section a billion times to make sure that like there was nothing that could. Wow. If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multiamory Podcast. This episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. She is a researcher and the author of several books, including The Polyamorists Next Door, Stories from the Polycule, and one of my personal favorites, When Someone You Love is Polyamorous. Uh, and we had her on the show a couple years ago. Yeah, a well, long time ago. Yeah, and we just had her back after running into her at Southwest Love Fest, and we're so excited to have this conversation to talk about all the new trends and new observations she's made about polyamorous families in this beautiful country of ours. <laughs> that was an interesting editorial note there, but... Uh... <laughs> and with that, let's get to the interview. So here we are with Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. Um, we're so happy to have you back on the show. It's been like a good solid two years, I, I believe, since we've had you on. Uh, but we saw you actually at Southwest Love Fest. Um, it was great to hear what you were talking about there. It was great to sit down and have an awesome drink with you. Um, so we definitely <laughs> wanted to have you back on the show. So for those of you out there, or dear listeners who don't know, uh, can you tell us about yourself, what you do, who you are? Yes, thanks. And thanks. It's so fun to be back. And it was really yeah. fun to see you. At the Southwest <laughs> uh-huh. Love I thought that was a really awesome conference. I had a yeah, great time. And especially for the first time, yeah, they, they did, did it. Oh, they gosh. Yeah, I think Tucson yeah, delivered. Definitely for putting yeah. it out for the first time. Done. Yeah, definitely. Totally. Yeah. Um, but I'm a researcher. I'm a sociologist. I started studying polyamory in 1996 wow. as part of my doctoral research. And since then, have been studying it in a longitudinal study, following the same people over time. I'm in my fourth wave of data collection right now, especially talking to kids about who've grown up, so teenagers and young adults especially, uh, about how growing up in a polyamorous family has impacted them Hmm. and talking to their parents about what it's like to age Hmm. in so it's been super interesting 
I love collecting the data because it's so fascinating to check back in with people and see how their lives have changed. You know, uh, like what's happened in the meantime? Yeah, can seriously. You, can you just clarify really quick? Because I'm not a researcher. I don't know how many of our listeners are. Um, I didn't know that data collection happened in waves. Can you explain that a little bit? I know. Fourth, yes. fourth wave. And how long between each successive wave? Right. Good idea. Yes. Um, you know, most data collection doesn't happen in waves. Most research is a point in time. And that can work great for some forms of research, but for studying families, it's longitudinal or following the same people over time is really important to get much more of a snap, much more than just a snapshot, mm. much more of a holistic picture. For instance, if I had only done single snapshots, I think I wouldn't necessarily realize how common it is for when people first come out to their family members, the family can, especially if they're religious, they can really freak out, mm -hmm. like really freak out. But if given five to 10 years, oh, wow. a good half of them calm down and, you know, interact with the family and see what it's like on a daily basis. And they're like, okay, I guess I kind of overreacted. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they even say, I'm sorry, I totally overreacted. Wow. I apologize. That's awesome. And that's the kind of, yes. And, you know, sometimes they don't. Sometimes those families are split permanently, but there's a solid chunk of them that once they calm down over time can reestablish a much more, friendly and you know maybe not super close spend weeks and weeks together but at least successfully like have a nice thanksgiving dinner and then you know have a drink and then go you know mm -hmm. maybe not yeah so that's one of the benefits of longitudinal research i've done my waves of data collection about every five years mm -hmm. over the past 20 years wow. so wow. i started yeah. the fourth wave of data collection for the 20th anniversary of the study mm -hmm. on um 2016 in 2016 and so i've each wave kind of takes me a long time because i'm a self-funded <laughs> you know <laughs> actually that's another link i should have given you and will oh, we'll find um, it. Yeah. my yeah. patreon page oh yeah 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 um people can contribute to this research if they want mm. it would really help me out to actually finish conducting it right. um to help support the poly family study that'd be great right. so awesome. i'll give you that link great okay so i guess the wave thing makes sense because i guess the only other alternative to actually being able to track trends over time is if you're there with a family 24 7 which i don't think anyone wants for 20 really. years <laughs> for 20 years oh gosh no <laughs> no <laughs> yeah so i just no, kind of dip in and out as it yeah. were yeah, right, that's, that's right. cool because I, I feel like people like in, you know, news media articles I read and stuff, there are a lot of studies that get trotted out. Like there tends to be these couple studies people mention a lot. The one that says, you know, like 20% of Americans have been in some form of open relationship mm -hmm. at some point in their lives. And then the 5% or you know, 4 to 5% are currently practicing some sort of non-monogamous thing. But those are like you were saying, that's just this like at this moment in time, this is what we found out. And it doesn't really show anything about the what happened to those people yeah um, totally so it is really cool and somewhat unique to find these sort of longitudinal studies 
Um, well, they're hard to sustain. Yeah. And with mine, it's been, you know, I've had respondents that I can't find anymore. Oh, wow. Right. Like had people kind of drift away and or I find them and contact them and they don't respond. And it's hmm. hard to know how much to pursue them you right. know like yeah. if they are really just done participating it's not cool to harass them of course. Yeah. but if they're just spacey and might be <laughs> which is a possibility but, you know, like right right like keep meaning to respond to that email so what i've decided and i hope it's the right thing is that three times i'll email someone or contact someone three times and if after that i haven't heard back from them then I just leave them alone. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a drag because I don't know why they won't talk to me. <laughs> yeah. It would be interesting yeah. if I could just say, hey, I understand you don't want to do this anymore, but why won't you talk to me? You know, like you're <laughs> right. just in case. Yeah. But yeah. if they're not talking to me, they won't tell me why they I won't mean, talk right. to I'm me. I'm sure it's not about you. Not no, I'm sure no, no, I don't mean like about me, but reasons for withdrawal from the yeah. study. That would be good data. That would be good data. I guess yeah, that's true. Really sure. interesting. Yeah. But, you know, it's when they're non-responsive, I can't force them yeah. to right. tell. Right. I, I just quickly wanted to ask how rare is a study like this? Are you simply the only person who's doing a study like this? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Wow. That's really in part special. because it's really difficult to sustain mm -hmm. over time. There have been longitudinal family studies, which gave me the idea. Right. There was a study of divorce that was this longitudinal study that found shifting impacts over time, huh. which I've also found with the kids in my sample. Sometimes when they're, I guess I'm thinking of one kid in specific when he was I think I talked to him when he was 15 and he was like, this sucks, man. This mm. totally sucks. Mm. And now he's, I think he's 23 perhaps. Mm -hmm. And he's um, like, yeah, I don't think the poly thing is for me, but I see everything I learned mm. from it. And actually, while some parts of it did suck in retrospect, it's actually, I'm really glad right. that my family was that way. In right. fact, I always ask, do you wish you could have had a different family than the one you did? And everyone always says oh no no even if it sucked in some ways i'm really glad i had that family like mm -hmm. even the ones who are like no way totally gonna be monogamous would absolutely under no circumstances be polyamorous myself are still glad yeah. that they had right. that kind of upbringing that opened their minds so much, which right. yeah. I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, when I was 15, I thought everything my family did sucked. So <laughs> I understand And that. you were right, because the world sucks when you're 15. It's true. Yes, it really did. Yes, it did. You know, like, <laughs> everything sucks. <laughs> Um, yeah, why don't you go on to this this next one here? Oh, sure. Um, so you've talked about these second and third generation polyamorous people that you've been seeing that like their parents were and then their parents' parents were or something. And so you're seeing people who've been polyamorous for a long period of time um, and who are second and third generation polyamorous people. So because of all that and because of your research, do you feel like the world is changing or shifting in some way that at the very least, this is going to become more prevalent um, or, or just less mm. taboo in society because people are starting to do it from like a family generational standpoint. 
You know, I don't see a whole ton of family generational mm -hmm. standpoint. Some people do, definitely. There are, you know, second and third generation poly folks. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't see as much of that, like in my sample, for instance, the kids are much more like, eh. there are a few that are like, oh, absolutely, totally poly. Mm -hmm. But they're much more, many more of them are maybe maybe not we'll see like it's on the menu mm. but they're not the champions of it and that's what i see in the future actually is non-monogamy consensual non-monogamy taking its place on the relationship menu right. much more like serial monogamy will probably be the most popular dish mm -hmm. still on the menu but there's all these other ways you can do it too that aren't nearly as outlandish. Right. And, you know, it's like gluten free. Kind of, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> uh -huh. we'll have the on the on the relationship menu, there'll be the non monogamy section where yes. you can have different versions of it and, you know, try different ways of it at different times. Mm -hmm. And that's what my my teenage and young adult respondents say that I'll see mm. when yeah. it works out. I'll see how it works out. I'll see what my partner wants for now. Mm. No, I'm right. not doing it. Right. That's the most common answer. Mm. And maybe in the future and maybe not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I see that as a growing I don't ever see non-monogamy replacing sure. monogamy. Right. Yeah. I think serial monogamy is going to be the long-term option for most, still the majority of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I definitely see it as, you know, kind of like, yeah, if you, oh, if you flip it over or there's a special menu, here's the <laughs> vegan menu special or the gluten-free menu. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh -huh. Excellent. I, yeah. Actually, I, sorry, I, I just, yeah. I really like that metaphor for explaining i think to people because i think we do get that a lot of people kind of thinking like oh is monogamy dying or is it going to go out of fashion or yeah a lot of people have been i lot, think are fearful yeah of i think that. a lot of people are fearful but yeah. i really like that metaphor of like no the same way that like you know veganism or gluten-free or vegetarianism <laughs> yeah. is yeah. obliterating yeah. people who want to eat meat or eat animal products mm, right you yeah. know that makes sense yeah, yeah. for sure um that was uh, it was interesting when you were talking about um you know, sort of the teenagers and they're kind of like, well, you know, it's an option. We'll see. I don't want to do it now. Uh, I mean, that's, that's something that we've tried to make one of the cornerstones of our show is just like, Hey, this is another option. Yeah. It's just important to know that if you're going to be monogamous, you should do it by choice and not because you think that's the only option you have. Yeah. Being conscious Definitely. about it. Yeah. yeah. But it was also reminding me of um, my little sister when she was in high school uh listen to you know listen to some of our podcast huh. and she was like man i wish it were possible to be polyamorous in you know in my high school in the midwest mm -hmm. uh she's like but i don't think that it would be mm -hmm. and it was funny because the the thought that i had was just sort of like yeah don't like don't try to do that <laughs> huh. right now yeah. not right now i think that would be really stressful and probably mm -hmm. You know, just like during a time when dating's already really stressful. Mm, right, when you're to already kind of trying to figure out level. all these things. And I'd love it if that wasn't the case eventually, where, you, you know, from the age of, you know, you first start dating, that that is an option. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I did have that thought of kind of like, Man, like that's going to add a lot of stress to your dating life right now. Maybe mm -hmm. just don't. And yet where there are queer youth, 
it is often part of queerness and yeah, there are a lot of queer youth, but they tend to be either out in large liberal cities mm-hmm. like LA, I'm mm-hmm. sure has a huge queer youth yeah, scene sure. and some poetry slams to go with it and <laughs> exactly. stuff like that, you know, like, so that poetry slam queer youth skater punk group, right. you're not monogamous too, you know? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, but in terms of like a mainstream high school in a small town, right. probably not safe to be queer youth and probably not safe to be poly youth mm-hmm. either. Yeah, that mm-hmm. makes sense. Totally. That makes sense. So I want to ask a question that was inspired by a recent, um, something that you wrote on Psychology Today pretty recently. Um, and I want to talk about specifically media portrayals of poly families. So we're on the tail end of our tour and our show on tour is all about representations of polyamory and non-monogamy in fictional media, like in TV and movies, commercials, things like that. And um, as a company, we are constantly hounded by producers, (laughs) um, either producers of reality shows or news segments or documentaries or whatever, who are always trying to be like, can you put us in touch with poly families or throuples or people who are cohabiting? You know, and I know that you are too because yeah, that's what that's you do. Just yeah, what you do. it's the same story. Yes, absolutely. And so you know, I guess my question is, you know, the way that we've responded to these emails has evolved over the years, mm-hmm. and I wanted right. to hear from you, like, do you think that this is something that we should be encouraging for the sake of representation and lessening stigma, or? Do you think like we really just got to let these people have their own freaking privacy? Um, I know that we've kind of gone back and forth on either trying to like really help people find good, healthy examples Mm -hmm. of cohabitating poly or people raising children. And then sometimes we've gone down to just kind of the shutdown of like, you're not going to find this because people are not going to want to talk to you. Um, But I wanted to know kind of what your take is on that in these Mm -hmm. days. Um, I think poly families are super gun shy of yeah. appearing on TV for very good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, the precedent was set with April Divil Bliss in yeah. the 1990s, the late 90s. It was an MTV show, right? Where, mm-hmm. Yes, she yeah. was on Real Sex or Real Life or Real Something. Yeah. On Not Real World? No. It was something else? No, uh, or Documentarian, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Her with her two male partners. Uh-huh. And lost custody as a result of that. And people have been hesitant to go on TV with their kids since then. And I think for good reason. I have multiple times suggested to producers that if they're serious, they want these families to take this risk for them then they should set up a legal defense fund wow. for yeah. the family. That's who say, You know, yeah. like if you really put your money where your mouth is and they always say, oh, no, no, we couldn't do that. Right. That's not even legally like we can't advocate yeah. on behalf of this. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, well, I can't help you. Right. You know, like I have, I also used to respond with like, oh, let me see. I'll put out a call, you know, I'll see. And I don't even put the calls out anymore. No one ever right. responds to them. Yeah. yeah exactly. That's what we found. It's just no one no wants one to do responds. it. But that no. makes so much so, sense to have that. Waste my time. Yeah, yeah. That makes so much sense to at least say that just so that at least people learn like, oh, there's actually a potential impact and risk yeah. here. Yeah. And maybe that. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that changes the way that we're going to approach people in the future. Yeah. Or 
something like that. I feel like there's this idea that everybody just wants to be on television and therefore <laughs> they want to just like share their story and go out there and get their 15 minutes of fame. But they, I think what these producers don't necessarily understand is that these are people's lives and their day-to-day existence mm-hmm. and that that's could have really impactful, awful ramifications if somebody took it the wrong way. Right. I found even and not even just custody, but yeah, sometimes exactly. for the kids yeah. at school. Yeah. This mm-hmm. one parent, when I was asking around to try to get people to go on one of these shows, this parent said, you know, my kid is already kind of a geeky, mm-hmm. awkward child. And to, you know, at 13 or whatever, to put them on national television as their parents or not even put them on, just put their parents on. Yeah. People will recognize us. Yeah. And, you know, do we really want to make his school life any harder than it is? Right. Yeah. School life already sucks. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> totally. Middle school blows. When you're a geeky 13 year old, and what 13 year old is not geeky? Exactly. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, comes with the territory. Exactly. Yeah, Gosh, I, I have seen though the other side of this. I was just reading um, an article recently that came out in some uh, I forget what it was a Canadian press outlet uh, where they did a story. This is just written, not a not like a TV news thing, but they were talking about different sorts of polyamorous relationships. And in reading it, I just found myself being like, Ugh, like these people are either brand new at this and like don't really know what they're doing but decided they wanted to have their picture taken and like be part of this article and i've noticed that a lot of of things that i'll read and like quotes that i'll see that have pictures of this thruple uh all you know living together and showing these pictures together and just like the things that they say and the ways they express about how they're doing it it's just so clear to me that it's like you're not really a part of the poly community yet. I can tell that you're new at this. Interesting. We probably said a lot of the same sorts of things, but it all comes off very trite or like huh. somewhat combative against monogamy or just mm. all the stuff that you see with people when they first get excited about mm. it. They think and, all of a sudden they're so enlightened. Or, or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Or or it's all about like how important their like one penis policy is in their relationship or, Jeez. you know, just stuff that, or, or that it's this, we just immediately went into this polyfidelitous triad and, you know, never thought I'd be into it before. These sorts of setups where I'm just like, yeah, okay, let me know in a year, like how that's still going. Right. But that's the thing is that the people who kind of are more in it are like, I don't want to rock the boat on this. I don't want to do this. And also the media is like, well, you're less interesting because there's less drama here. Exactly. Exactly. Uh-huh. So it is this, or maybe you're round, or you have gray exactly. hair, or mm-hmm. you know, like the media wants young, super slender, attractive people, yeah. and the reality of most people is obviously not you three. You are far more attractive <laughs> than the average. I would say the three of you certainly, but the like more mundane people uh-huh. just don't look that good on TV. Right, mm-hmm. right. And so they want, you know, like young, attractive people having dramatic, explosive mm-hmm. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> interactions. No, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But that is the other side of it, though, is that, you know, the people that I do know that are cohabiting or that are raising children and that are stable, I also know I'm like, that's just not good TV, mm-hmm. you know? And I think we try to tell people that now. Folding of, like, laundry. 
Exactly. Yeah. It's, you know, like having a glass of wine, fully yeah. along. Like it's gotten to this point when, when people reach out and they're like, oh, we want to find troubles living together, people raising kids that I'm kind of like, it would be so ridiculous if someone reached out and was like, we want to find a gay couple raising kids and come into their home and interview them yeah, and, and see what and they see are like how in the they wild. live and yeah. like and I, mean, I don't know What's maybe their furniture like <laughs> exactly <laughs> like maybe 20 or 30 years ago maybe somebody would have right. done that kind of project but now it's like we're like what that's ridiculous they're going to be sending text messages and picking the kids up from school and that's what it's going to be like and i feel like the media hasn't quite gotten that message quite yet yeah. because i guess there's just enough people with enough drama um, to kind of yeah. keep the slow drip going. I don't know. That's just yeah. a theory. But what's the average poly fam- family up to? Dishes, yes. bath, work, <laughs> laundry, right. bed. All the same. Yeah. Too ti- probably too tired for sex. Right, <laughs> right. We're yeah, talking about it far email. too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Watching a rerun of Scandal and going yeah. to bed. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so as far as families go, so this is actually something that comes up a lot too when when media outlets will reach out to us, they're always looking for what they think of as polyamorous people, which is usually a triad living together. Um, and I know that in your studies, it's about polyfamilies. And like often when people come to us with that, one of our answers is like, okay, I understand that's what you're looking for, but just so you know, most polyamory doesn't look like that. The vast majority of people are intersecting dyads that sort of form a network, but each relationship is almost always two people. It's very rare to find those triads, and it's especially rare to find ones that last. I was curious to hear from you, because I think when people hear, oh, she researches polyfamilies, their image is like, oh, it's all these triads triad, with triad, kids. Triad, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that is that true? Is that representative of, of who's in your study? Like, who are the actual polyfamilies out there? Or do they look a little different than that? Um, I can think of several co-residential triads with children. But a lot of them, I would say more, are either single parents or Hmm. who are divorced. Like it Hmm. used to be, I had more couples with kids dating others and several of those like big deal couple relationships have divorced, which sent like ripples through their local poly communities. Um, And one quad lost a member and is a triad now, but Hmm. there have also been several long-term triads that have lasted. So I would say there's been lots of shifting, Mm -hmm. which is actually characteristic. If you look at people's family lives over 20 years, right? Yeah. People sometimes die, they get divorced, they get remarried, they stay together, they have kids, the kids leave, they have other things happen, the kids come back, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. right. and parent move in, you know, like right. they've got, it is characteristic of families to change across mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So the fact that these poly families are also changing across time is really not that shocking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I would say there's no single form of, of the poly family. Yeah. I can think of a quad that is one of the strongest, most together families in this study. And, you know, people are all about quads are too unstable. Quads never make it. Quads huh. never last. And 
it's I one of the people in the quad told me one time that all you have to do is tell him not to do something and he is by God going to do something. <laughs> and so, you know, all you got to do is tell him his quad's not going to last uh-huh. and by gum that quad is, you know, going strong <laughs> and like 15 years or something now right. I would have wow. to ask them again, wow. but they're, That's great. they're right. not. Yeah. Yeah. Plowing yeah. along. Mm-hmm. Well, that I mean, that's the thing is that even myself, who's been in this community for like so many years now, I'm always blown away by how many different ways that people do it. Every time I think right. I've seen every possible way to do it, then I go to like some other meetup in another town and I'm like, wow, that's a whole new way of negotiating right. this. That's a whole new way of negotiating child rearing or cohabiting or just dating or sex or whatever. Um, and which I think is wonderful and beautiful. But that mm-hmm. I think that is the thing is like, I think that as a public, we so try to attach to like, I need one image. I need one image so that I can understand this when it's like, right. nah, man, like we're human Make beings. it hold still. Exactly, like, just hold still. All over the place. Just make it hold still in one little box. Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. When it's like, nah, like we're human beings and we do shift and adapt and change and we're so different. And then of course, like our relationship structures are gonna reflect that as well. Yeah, no, yeah. for sure. And I just, I feel like that would be a really interesting story in the media if they could accept that changing their mind about what the story is they're going to tell about polyamory is like, wow, look at how these relationships can change and people mm-hmm. can stay in each other's lives in different ways and have different connections to each other. And that not everyone has to have sex with each other to be important to each other. Like mm-hmm. that I think would be a really interesting story, but they just totally. don't know that that story is there to tell. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or they're just afraid no one cares about that story, but I actually yeah. think it would be a really cool one. For sure. Well, I tell them that story and they're like, eh, we do the same thing because, because yeah we're not like a perfect little like triad that right. like, lives together right. with a podcast we have this weird history that's shifted yeah. and changed and there's other partners who are like not involved with the podcast and like you know that everything moves and changes and shifts and it's the same yeah. thing it's like uh eh. We'll get back to you. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. We, um, we reel them in, though, because we look like we could be the perfect little triad. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's what gets them knocking it's on the door. It's a male with two bitches. It's, exactly. Well, it's sorry. a man with two bitches. You are yeah. so attractive. <laughs> oh, I bet they see you and they're like, score. Yeah, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah jackpot. And then, little, little you know, the now. average mere mortal poly person. Exactly. You three are like 11. Jeez. Oh, if this were Spinal Tap, you would oh, be it. Oh, shucks. Okay. No, so it's true. Let's, it's move true. It. Let's move it along. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, so something that you do in addition to all of your research is that you're an expert witness. Um, we've actually yes. been getting a lot of like legal questions recently that we're not exactly fit to answer. Um, <laughs> right. But have you specifically seen like how polyamory fits into a legal framework? Um, and, and by that, I mean, like, are you seeing trends? Are you seeing any precedents being set or, or anything like evolving and changing in regards to the rights that people have or how like families can be protected or securing parenting rights, anything along those lines? Actually, I see a lot of Great. movement on that line. And I, first I need to say that I'm not a lawyer and this is not legal advice. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I am a sociologist and this is exactly what you said. You identified as trends in what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, What I see is a significant shifting on the legal level of allowing three legal parents. That is a very big deal. Mm. And that's happening in California and in New York. Mm. 
Mm. right now. There have been significant decisions in both of those states around that. And I see that just continuing, trickling in from each coast, yeah. trickling down the coast and probably stopping before it reaches me. I'm in Tennessee, <laughs> so I don't, I don't know about, you know, yeah. but certainly like spreading across the north. I totally see this happening in Chicago, for instance. Yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. Really? Totally going to happen. I, I don't know if there's a, a, a case in Chicago, but that kind of place mm. will absolutely be facing this within the next five years yeah. or sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in part, not only because of polyamorous families, but with assisted reproduction, mm. you can have three or more right. people right. who are biological parents. Yes. So the laws have just got to shift yeah. to accommodate this. And they are. Hmm. And I see that is going more and more. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think other laws that are slowly starting to budge and might be shifting much more so in the future, at least I hope, are laws around discrimination. Mm. Yeah. Right now, the primary forms of discrimination that affect polyamorous people are housing yeah. discrimination mm. wow. and employment discrimination. Yeah. So you can be, if you have too many um, unrelated people living in a domicile, and that right. means usually three or more, but not servants. It's fine if they're your servants. Jeez. You have as many unrelated servants as you want. You just can't live there without them. Yeah, I did on, not know that. Yeah, I have out. a question about is that. Is that just um, a Tennessee is thing? It, like, do wait, do they actually, is there any, is there verbiage around it being servants or is it like, is it really is like it collectively enforced? That's a good question. Uh, I think that there is an exemption specifically, but you know who has worked on that is I just got to give a shout out to them because they're freaking awesome. The Woodhull Sexual Freedom Alliance uh, yes, huh. yes, they do has deserve, they worked deserve a on this housing discrimination issue and they have pointed out that it's only discriminating against poorer people yeah. who right. are more likely to share housing. Yeah. Interesting. And um, because rich people can have as many servants living with them as they want in wow. the servants' Jeez. quarters. It's only people who are not servants that they apply this against. Wow. That's what the Woodhull brief pointed out. Sorry, that just blows so, my mind. It just blows yeah, my mind still that we're still having this conversation yeah, well, in 2018 about a lot like, of things servants in 2018 okay. blow oh, my mind. Gosh. Yeah, geez. Okay. I just had to say that. Yeah. And it's not everywhere. These are like municipal. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That are often selectively enforced against people the neighborhood wants to get rid of. So Jeez. often targeting immigrants, for mm -hmm. instance, wow. or prohibiting immigrants at all. Right. Um, right. Targeting fraternities and sororities. Mm. But again, just as you know, society is shifting, and more and more people are having three parents or whatever mm -hmm. it's uh, there it, there's this housing crisis of affordable housing yes. in the u.s and all over the world yes. where Definitely a lot right of people LA. even adults have roommates like it's yes. really very common for adults in their 30s and 40s and 50s yeah. to have roommates now in a way that that was a much more juvenile thing yeah yeah before by the time you were 50, yes. maybe you had a bachelor pad, but you lived, you know, like on your own. Now you 
I know so many people who cannot afford, if they own a home, they can't afford to pay the mortgage Mm -hmm. without renters living there. And if they don't own a home, they're renting a bedroom in a house or an apartment where other people live too. And that's just the reality, the economic reality. So that's too many people to evict. The laws have got to change to support society as it is, unless that's not why we have laws and policies. If we want our laws and policies to harass people and make poor people's lives difficult, then we should absolutely keep those housing laws as they are. But if we want our laws and policies to facilitate society as it is, then we got some catching up to do Yeah, quick. Yeah, that's an interesting conversation to have of like if we're having laws to maintain a status quo versus having laws to actually protect respond to and protect people yeah. as they are. Because, uh, I mean, this kind of starts to get away from specifically, you know, cohabiting polyamorous people. Right. But I've always felt that our generation in particular, since fewer of us are marrying, fewer of us are having kids, you know, like by the time we are in our 50s and 60s, like I feel like a lot more people will be in that situation of like living together with roommates or living in a more intentional community. Mm -hmm. And that's where people are going to get their community needs fulfilled and their care fulfilled when they don't have their adult children to rely on um, as though that's a foolproof plan anyway. Um, And so I always, you know, I always look into the future and feel like, like we are going to have to catch up and how we enforce these kind of laws and policies just because of the way trends are going that like, we're not all going to have the lives that our grandparents had in retirement. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not all going to be able to afford like a house and a lawn or a retirement home or whatever. Or retire at all. Or retire at all for quite a long time. Um, That's another, that's another factor. Yeah. 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 Jeez. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I guess the second area where poly people are experiencing discrimination, and this one can be super brief. I won't go on such oh, no. tangents. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. We got the time. Is employment. People are mm. definitely getting fired for even just talking about polyamory at work. Jeez. Others are interpreting that as sexual harassment in a way that having, you know, talking about your monogamously married husband or wife the people I've spoken to in these cases are talking just on that same level. Like I'm with my partners to this barbecue. And it's a story about the barbecue and not kinky sex at the barbecue, which didn't happen. You know, it's like water cooler, not it's PG, you know, (laughs) and they're still getting accused just because they said the word polyamory, this concept the coworker felt sexually harassed. So this person wow. was fired. Jeez. Interesting. So I just want to ask because, you know, we recently, we had a lawyer on our show um, who specializes in family law and works with the polyamorous community and things like that. And we talked to him a lot about employment discrimination and employment rights. And he, like his stance was kind of like, yeah, it happens. But at the same time, like we don't see a lot of people getting fired, like if they have an affair or whatever. And so like, exactly, maybe, maybe we need to be not as worried about it. But then at the same time, all three of us individually have personal lived experiences of experiencing either discrimination or being let go for a job or being passed for a job or creating right. at least some kind of really awkward workplace tension hmm. because of that. So I'm kind of curious of like, what is it that you've seen in your studies regarding this specifically i mean i know you just kind of told the whole barbecue story um right right comparable um that that person was more contacting me as a legal client rather than a member of my studies so i 
blended that information. Well, it, I mean, in um, your professional experience, I guess, not just the study. Yes, yes. That it's people often who will be, um, it's either coworkers who get uptight about it and have a vendetta and, you know, like get that person fired because yes. the coworker is like, uh-uh, you know, not only do I not want to be polyamorous, but I don't want anybody else to be polyamorous and I'm going to make your life hard because mm -hmm. you are. Yeah. Um, or there are sometimes, um, oh, now I'm blanking on the word morality clauses mm. right. mm. in yes. employment contracts, which again are very enforced, right. very selectively. Like people in corporate America do some crazy shit and we're worried about having two partners consensually. Really? Right. Okay. Like yeah. that's hurting. You're like, have you have you watched the news recently? Yeah. Right, like, exactly. Stop being exactly. such a fucking hypocrite. No, I had to totally. I had to renegotiate yeah. the morality clause in my publishing contract with wow. my agents. Really? Wow. Well, because again, it was that same thing of of where it's where we just really had to be very specific in that clause of like what counts as an immoral thing as far as what the author does with her life right. versus what are the values of the company. We just had to like really reword that section a billion times to make sure that like there was nothing that could wow. come up. Come back wow. Yeah, you. exactly. Oh. I know. Right? So exhausting know. and unnecessary. Come on. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Ridiculous. No, I mean, I, I feel very fortunate now that I'm at a company where that's not a concern for me like I can be out at work and mm -hmm. talk with people about it and I you know I try not to bring it up too much you know unless someone else right. asks me about it or something or if I mention the podcast or something but um in the example of the time where I was passed up for a job was because not because and the owners cared at all but because a guy who worked there was upset about it Jeez. and made us think about it well this was at the job where you were what's his name we won't say his name on the show, oh. but where he got really upset oh, about okay. the fact that I was polyamorous with Emily uh, okay. and made such a stink about it that I just sort of like the calls from the owners as we were like ready to start me working there just mm. kind of stopped. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it reminded me of something that we talk about a lot on this show that I believe comes from you, which is the phrase um, fear of the polyamorous possibility. Yes. Uh, which yes. I, I yeah. love that phrasing. I think it's brilliant, which is why we mention it so often. But cool. it is that. And I think it's, I think that's where we're getting to something. And I'd like to hear your opinions on this as well. But that idea that if someone cheats on their spouse, it's kind of like, well, you suck or like you made a mistake either by getting caught or by doing it, depending on your point of view. Whereas with polyamory, there is that thing of like, people can be so personally upset by you doing polyamory because it raises questions in their mind about how they live their life, or, yeah. right? Uh, it's like the thought that there could be another way to do it is too threatening to all the sacrifices I've made in my life to live it the only way I think it's possible to live it that that's why I'm so angry. That's why I'm so upset. And that's why I need you to get fired or right. I mu must have to come up with some way to show that you're immoral or that mm. you're, you know, somehow doing something wrong here or sexually harassing me or, or whatever. I was just curious. I mean, does that seem kind of in line with what you were seeing when you. Absolutely. Kind of Absolutely. That? And I think it's often people who have issues around infidelity mm. that yeah. react so strongly either in their families of origin, one of their parents cheated on the other, and that made family life 
incredibly painful or they were in on this terrible secret or everyone yeah. knew and mom was humiliated or the family got divorced and dad that asshole we hate him now or um or they are cheating and they don't want their partner to get ideas about yeah. also having other partners mm. you know they want the option themselves but not to extend it right. to their yeah. partners or they've been cheated on mm. yeah and they're like no this is wrong people who want multiple partners mm. are just, just bad cheating. people yeah. right right and we should do something about those bad people and that's the part i mean i understand the feeling of not wanting to be polyamorous yourself i absolutely get that i think polyamory is not for everyone in fact yeah. it's probably not for the majority right. of people so i am not at all invested in everyone being polyamory certainly right. not and being certainly polyamorous are we, yeah. just to clarify for no. right <laughs> absolutely sure. most poly people are like do you but that's the thing do you i don't my own life is so exhausting i cannot imagine trying to like tell someone else what kind of sex they could have like <laughs> i think i would get my bathroom clean first before yeah. i start like meddling with other people's sex lives yeah. i really don't understand some people put so much time and effort and focus and energy into that and it just seems mystifying to me i tr mm. truly on a deep level do not get it at all yeah. why they would put that much effort likewise yeah into that not wanting it themselves sure right making sure you don't get a job really yeah. come on yeah with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's multi, M-U-L-T-I, at adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast, and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I.
To go back to your study a little bit, I was just curious, in this fourth wave now, you've been doing this fourth wave for a couple of years already. I was just curious, because I'm sure a book's going to come out in the near future that's going to include all of this. <laughs> Another bug. <laughs> uh, your last your last two books have been these really great insights into the way polyfamilies work and like the reality Thanks. of that. Um, and I actually, I did want to say real quick, I recommend When Someone You Love is Polyamorous to Everybody. Yeah. Like oh, everybody. I'm glad to hear that. I, I think it's it, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but mm. I freaking love that book because mm. it's just oh, so yay. short, sums it up in this really non-threatening way. It's, it's so efficient. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. that's just the fact that it's like so short. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously I wrote a really long book, so it's not like I hate long <laughs> books or anything like that. Um, uh, but I think it's just that, that it's like so accessible, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, mm-hmm. to so many people. Yeah. It's great. Great. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah. Um, yay. But, but my question, sorry, I got off track there. My question was about, uh, can you give us sort of a sneak preview of kind of anything that you've been seeing in this wave of collecting data that we'll probably read more about in your book when that comes out? Let's see. So a highlight from the kids is this resilience, this emotional resilience. Mm. They feel like they develop, Mm. um, that when they move out from home, like if they move to go away to college or something like that, they feel like they have the skills, the personal and emotional skills to develop a network of intimates, like redevelop a support network Mm -hmm. wherever they go. And sometimes they see their peers, for instance, living in the dorms with just no clue Mm -hmm. how to Mm self-regulate, how to make friends, how to develop an intimacy, you know, like develop intimacy with new people, emotional support how to even like regulate the way they spend money or do Mm. laundry or eat food Mm. and the poly the kids from poly families even though they've had a lot of adult attention over their lives it hasn't been that much helicopter parenting it's been much more like you know we communicate we tell each other the truth and there are consequences for your actions Mm. so if I tell you, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, that I think you should bring a coat because it's going to get cold today. And you don't bring a coat, then it turns out you're cold. Right. Who knew? Mm-hmm. You know, so they're not the parents who, like, sneak the coat and carry it for the kid and then pull it out when the kid is mm-hmm. cold. They're like, yeah, you're cold. Who knew? So by the time they're 18, they're like, if I spend every cent I have by the fifth of the month, right. then... I'm not going to eat for 25 days. Boy, yeah. that's a bummer. Maybe I'll still have, or maybe I'll get this and buy 12 cases of Top Ramen <laughs> as an investment. Right. And then I'll know I can always fall back on that. You right. know, like they're more practical hmm. Interesting. in yeah. a way from not having had helicopter parents, yeah. I you, really think. Do you think that, you know, the the trend of, of there being less helicoptering with the parenting, do you think that's a result of the child raising labor being split among more parents, possibly? I, I'm, I'm kind of just shooting in the dark here. I have no idea. Yeah, I have that same like thought. It. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's that, that also the adults are interacting a mm. lot. So the kids are kind of around, but they're not necessarily the sole focus yeah. of oh, yeah. the family. And often it's not like 
the parents have to use the kids to avoid each other because if they're mm -hmm. dating, they're, you know, like going out and doing things or there's much less avoidance mm -hmm. in a family where you can talk about things. Like yeah, it's, it's okay to ask questions and talk about things and bring things up. You don't get in trouble for that. Mm -hmm. So the parents can be more comfortable around each other. Mm. I think it's also a function of um, wanting private time sometimes from the kids and saying, okay, kids, you know, like our, I have had multiple children report that they look back very fondly on when their parents metamore would come over their you know girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever and bring their kids because mm. the adults would disappear <laughs> behind closed doors but before they went they would be like here are 12 frozen pizzas six <laughs> chocolate bars here's all the remotes you can have unlimited screen time mm -hmm. do not bother us for five hours uh -huh. unless something on fire. Right. Yeah. If someone is bleeding, hold the limb up and press, <laughs> you know, like so they're not they're like, we have things to do. We have orgasms to have. Yes. And we want to go do them somewhere else without you bothering us. Yeah. So right. get the run of the living room or the basement or something. Huh. And we are gonna go have adult time. Yeah. Right. That's great. Interesting. That actually, that's a good segue into something that I wanted to ask, because I, I get a number of clients who come to me, um, people who have, usually it's like people who have children, you know, either with their current partner that they're living with, or maybe with an ex-partner, and usually the children don't know that mom or dad are dating or getting into polyamory or some kind of open relationship, and everyone's very, very stressed about how mm -hmm. do they tell their children do they tell their children? Should they tell their children? But most importantly, how? Um, and I know that at Southwest Love Fest, you know, your presentation, you talked about um, children having different reactions to their parents' behavior depending on their age. And I would mm -hmm. love if you don't, you know, if you don't mind kind of briefly going through that and what you saw. Sure. Yes. Um, very small children definitely do not need to know. They do not understand sex. They don't really get what adults do after they go to bed at 8 p.m. Mm -hmm. So the adults can get up to all sorts of stuff that their two-year-old just doesn't know two-year-old needs to know about or could understand. Right. Five and six-year-olds often really do not understand that. Like you, It can take well into teens before kids start putting that kind of thing together. Right. Well, so kind of like, like small children. Before that, it's the world revolves around me, and if you're not doing something for me, then I, I, I don't, don't care. care. <laughs> right, exactly. Do yeah. you have ice cream? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Will, will you sit on the floor and play Legos? Yeah. Yeah. Can I dress you up? Yeah. Can I smear makeup on your face? Uh -huh. Awesome. You know, like kissing stuff. I don't want to hear about. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, like that's kind of how kids think about it is the kissing thing, and they're like, that's <laughs> gross. There. Um. I would say for many parents in my research, a lot of them who've had children born into a polyamorous family, just wait for the kid to notice the family is different and say, mm -hmm. hey, what's up with this? Mm -hmm. Unless it comes up naturally. And then sure, yeah, go ahead and explain it, giving age appropriate mm -hmm. and limited information. Most kids don't want to hear about sex. 
um, young, like tweens and teens want to hear that their parents are hanging out. That's right. all they, that's the language to use and don't elaborate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you can tell small children that this is your friend, maybe even a special friend, possibly a kissing friend and Ooh. leave it at that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start referring to you as my, my kissing, kissing friend. friend. <laughs> my, <laughs> this is my kissing friend, Dedeker. <laughs> Um, The important thing when you're talking to kids about polyamory is just to be matter of fact about it, not make it into a huge big deal like, I have something to tell you, you know, Mm -hmm. it's more like, hey, so this is, I just want you to know, you know, your dad and I see other people and we both know about it. It's not a secret. If you have any questions, please feel free to ask us. And I just, you know, like there's no secret. You're, we're not hiding in, anything from each other. And you don't have to feel like something weird is happening. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you have questions, go ahead and ask us. And otherwise, falls in your court. You know, right, like yeah. here's yeah. the right. minimal of information. And I will respond to more if you want. Right. Yeah. It, it reminds me actually of another question that I think I get pretty frequently from people who have kids. And a lot of people always ask, when is the right time to introduce a new partner mm. to my child? You know, when is too soon? When is too late? And then it's going to be weird that like I have this five-year relationship that this kid, my kid's never known about or whatever. Or when is it, you know, is six months too soon? Where like, I don't know, maybe this person's not going to stick around or not. Like, mm. do you have any insight about that? I would say, when do you introduce other people just in your social environment, treat the partner mm like you treat other people that's interesting because it's not that important to the kid who you're having sex with like they'd rather not know Mm -hmm. then if this is someone you would just have over for dinner and game night or go see a drive-in with or whatever introduce them like that like hey our friends coming to the drive-in our friends coming over for dinner they're going to come play games with us or we're all going bowling together and you don't have to put a big label on it they can just be part of the natural social environment. Mm -hmm. And it also puts a lot less stress on them having things go well with the kid. Cause you know, talk about like the the stress for the polyamorous partner coming in to like, Oh, is this 14 year old going to like me? You know, no, 14 year olds don't like anyone. So they're not going (laughs) to like you, but they feel like, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe you'll be their awesome bowling buddy that Mm -hmm. they can finally three years later say, Hey, I don't want to talk to dad about this, but Mm. condoms give me this weird rash and I don't know what to do about it. Help, you know, and you'll be that pal who, you know, you've known for three years since the bowling alley and be relationship anarchist about it. Well, I just feel like so much polyamory advice comes down to like, what would you do with friends or coworkers or other relationships? Like, why do we have to hold relationships with people that we have the potential to have sex with in this whole other category? Yeah. Because I do love that, too, because it's also people say, oh, I don't want to introduce them to my kids because what if they don't stick around or it doesn't last? And it's like, well, you wouldn't think that about a coworker came over for dinner. What if my kid never sees them again after this? They're going to think like they wouldn't give a shit. (laughs) It's just we treat it so differently. Yeah, right. I think because we're so wired into this idea of like dating is for the purpose of getting married mm-hmm. and that's it and like becoming a co-parent right. or something, yeah. in some yeah. way interesting. Yeah. interesting so okay you're about to go on a tour so what is that what what is this tour like can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about it and it is going yeah. to be for a long time in a lot of different it places is. in the country yeah Woo-hoo. 
Um, I'm doing the practical non-monogamy tour. Mm. And it generally in each place, I have two series of workshops that I do. One for just people in the community who have questions about polyamory, kinky sex, non-monogamy, and just want information and the ability to ask questions of an expert and, you know, like be in a group with other people thinking and talking about the same thing and have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. right. um, the other set of workshops is for counselors and therapists and they offer continuing education units mm. uh, certified through ASECT, which is the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Wow. Nice. So um, lay people or like non-therapists, non-counselors can come to those as well. Um, so they're not only for therapists. They might really be interesting for other people too. Um, but the community workshops don't give any continuing education credits. The ones that are targeted for just people who are interested, like how does this affect my life? Right. You know, yeah. not right. how do I how do I get training to help clients? Yeah. right. Deal with consensual non monogamy, and part of the training for therapists actually is to help them think through any internalized compulsory monogamy mm. they have because research shows that when poly people go to therapists who shame them for being polyamorous yeah. or focus only on the polyamory as the problem and can't get past to look at other things that the client is trying to emphasize, things like that, that that has a negative outcome for the client right, in yeah. therapy. So if people can kind of deal with some of their own reactions to polyamory and kinky sex before they're in front of a client and get some information and think it through, mm -hmm. it can really help them be more effective in their therapy counseling and good for coaches too, relationship yeah. 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 Yeah, that's definitely I mean, that that's training that's so needed. And I think especially you talk about kind of diving into the like the nuances of what's your own internalized compulsory monogamy thing. Um, I think about the fact that uh, like a couple years back when I was kind of trying to find a therapist, uh, specifically a, a couples therapist, um, uh, that, you know, I found all these people who are like polyfriendly, polyfriendly, polyfriendly. But then I found the one therapist who on her website mentioned like I'm polyfriendly for this wide variety of relationship types, like relationship hmm. anarchists, oh, wow. non-hierarchical polyamory, hierarchical polyamory, uh, you know, monogamish. Like, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is the person I'm going to go with because I like, I know that this, this therapist understands that there's all these different ways to do it. Right. And there's not going to be some kind of weird agenda about like what they think polyamory is or what they think it yeah. should be. Um, and so I think that like that training that brings like a, such a more expansive conversation to it other than just like some of your clients might sleep around and that's okay. Right. Yeah. 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 And most, especially family therapy programs are not teaching about right. polyamory. Oh, sure. So it's, yeah. I don't know where these people would get this education right. if they're not getting it in their programs. Right. And often the family therapy programs actively say that any kind of non-monogamy is corrosive to intimacy. Mm. Wow. So as a counselor, you've got to shut that shit down and here's how to do it. Right. So they've been 
marinated in pro-monogamy as the only right way to have intimacy. And if there's any non-monogamy, it's a signal of a problem. Mm -hmm. But not for some clients, you know, like for some clients, yes, non-monogamy is a signal of a problem. Definitely. Cheating sucks. Definitely. Yeah. Especially if you're the one that gets cheated on. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Can you also tell us, um, so you're in this fourth wave of research. Who are you looking for now for the study? Are you looking for more participants? What is that if people are thinking, oh my gosh, I, I would like to be involved with this? Yeah. Right now, I'm focused on if there are more people out there who've been raised by polyamorous families or any form of consensual non-monogamy. So if you're in your, you know, if you're older than 10 years old Mm -hmm. and could have some serious, or even, you know, like a teenager or a young adult, that would be ideal. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the rest of this year, focusing on that. Um, Then I'm going to be in Zurich for the winter, um, teaching at the University of Zurich, a class on polyamory. Fantastic. And then when I get back, um, I think I want to finish up with the um, data collection on aging Mm. people. And it would be interesting for me to have very aged people. You know, I've interviewed some elders in the polyamorous community, certainly, but a lot of my respondents in my study, the people I've been following over time, they're like the end of uh, the baby boom, the very end of the baby boom and Gen X is kind of that. So they're not like in their 80s. I would be very interested in how polyamory looks in your 80s. They're more like in their 40s to 60s. -hmm. And they're like, oh, we're, we're, not as interested in sex as we used to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. We're glad that, you know, like if someone dies, we have each other yeah. to hold on to. Mm. Yeah. Um, one thing that struck me about that generation of respondents, actually, is that that recession in 2008 yeah. just tanked a lot of them. And they have not recovered financially. I had one person in this last round of data collection tell me that he was in much better shape financially when he was 20 than Mm. he was at 50. He was just turning 50 and freaking out about it. Like, I don't have any money. I lost my house. I'm back in this other house. But like without and getting through those challenging financial periods, metamors make Hmm. all the difference in multiple cases like that guy who was freaking out about turning 50 um was able only able to get into this other house because his metamor had let him and his wife and their kids live for free Mm -hmm. in this house for like a year and a half so they were able to rebuild their lives and then they were able to go out and get their own place but without that assistance Wow. They probably wouldn't have been homeless, but they probably would have been 
in much shape. worse shape. Yeah, right. certainly. Right. Well, that's I mean that's just a testament to like having intimate community, which yeah. I think regardless of your relationship format is something that is so important for each of us to bear in mind yeah. going into the totally. future. Yeah. 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 For sure. So for people who want to learn more about your work, they want to find your books, they want to be involved in your studies, they want to learn about your tour, where they can see you, where can they go to find out all that information? So you can check out elizabethchef.com. And my first name is spelled with an S, not a Z, mm -hmm. elizabethchef.com. Um, that's a great place to start. I blog on psychology today. My last name is S-H-E-F-F, -F, if you want to search for me there. Um, you can also support the Polyamorous Family Study on Patreon, and I'll definitely provide you with the link yeah. for that. Yeah, all um, these will the be in our show description, too. The Monogamy Tour mm. is where you can look for me there on Squarespace. And on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Eli Chef. Dr. Eli Chef. All right. Yeah. Nice. Well, we'll put, and I assume that from your website, they can find all these other things too, right? Yes. Okay. So we'll, yes. we'll have links to those in the show description for this. So if yeah. you're listening and you want to do that, check the show notes, find those links, uh, and go support all the awesome work that Dr. Eli Chef is doing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for coming back on our show. We really Thanks appreciate it. Thanks for having it. me. Yeah. And congratulations on your recent return from your world. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was great. A lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so that was an amazing, amazing interview with Eli. It was yeah. so great to have that was her great. back on again. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully in like another two years, she'll have even more things to say. So we'll have her back on yeah. again. Definitely. Uh, so if you would like to have your question or comment played on the show, you can call 678-M-U-L-T-I-05. And leave us a voicemail, or you can send us an audio message at the Multiamory Facebook page. You can also email us at info at or send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. To support our show and join our private Facebook community, go to patreon.com slash Multiamory. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.